entered seminary a number of years ago, I brought with me a certain set of, I'll call them beliefs, but to be honest, um, they were just opinions wrapped in theological language, okay? I'm I'm just going to be honest about that. There I confess, now I can preach, right? But the the deal was is that everybody kind of when you go into school, you, you, you... you've got a certain amount of opinions that you're taking with you. One of those, for me, uh, personally, was um, the idea that the church was supposed to be led by males. And I had grown up in a part of the country where that was the norm. Most of the denominations, and, and I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are certain geographic parts of the country where there are certain types of denominations that are, are more populous than others. And I grew up in West Michigan, right about here, okay? And in that area, there was a a heavy contingent of what's called Dutch Reformed. And in that tradition, uh, there was a male leadership um, paradigm that most of them were operating. Uh, Now, we had been part of the Wesleyan Church, and the Wesleyan Church had a different view on that. But to be honest, I kind of felt like, yeah, I think it's it's kind of a, a male thing. And then I got to seminary, and I met a woman named Christy, and I met a woman named Marilyn, who could just flat out preach. And they had, in my opinion, a divine gift to be able to do that. And I got to be honest with you, it shook me a little bit, because up until that point, I had not experienced a female leader who led like that. Now, <clears throat> it's pretty obvious to see is that, wh- why would I? I? I didn't live in an area where that was common. And so, my field of reference was very, very narrow. You go to a, a place like Wilmore, Kentucky, and, and you're in a Wesleyan holiness area, and all of a sudden that field of vision got a lot bigger. Does this make sense? So for me personally, there was a moment where I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, this doesn't make any sense to me. This, this, is, this is not how God had it in mind. And the Holy Spirit's like, poke, poke. <laughs> and every time I heard these two women in particular and a few others speak, I thought, my goodness. And then I started reading the Bible in context and began to understand that the interpretation that I had been taught is not necessarily the the only way to interpret those passages. And we have this long history within the Wesleyan tradition of ordaining women. Women belong in leadership. And if you'll notice, around here, we have women on staff, we have women on our our board of directors, and it will always be that way as long as I'm the pastor, okay? I'm just going to say that up front. And I've been in churches where I have pastored. We have had people leave because I've had women in the pulpit. It's like, okay, God bless you. That's a hill you want to die on, that's fine. But for me, this is one of those places that I've decided that this is where I think God has left left for us this idea of, of... egalitarian, that we all sort of belong in leadership. And here's where it really, really hit me. 
I realized that if I had a female in my congregation who had teaching and preaching gifts and I didn't help develop them, bottom line, that was a sin issue on my part. You know, I'm going to stand in front of Jesus for a lot of things. I'm pretty sure I didn't want to stand in front of Jesus for that one, right? And so, consequently, my position changed, and it was uncomfortable. It wasn't, it wasn't a fun process to go through. <clears throat> and I know what the passages of Scripture are, and there has to be some context around them, and I think probably next year I'm going to talk about them, so um, stay tuned on that one. But, but here's the question, here's the question, here's why I'm telling you that story. Have you ever had one of those times where you have held this clo- had this closely held belief one that you would fight tooth and nail over, and you begin to see evidence to the contrary? Or, what are you carrying right now that you don't even think about because it's so close to your heart, and, and yet you, you sense that maybe, just maybe, there's, there's something playing along the edge, the periphery of your brain that's going, is that really true? What happens when your belief is challenged? What happens? Well, typically we get frustrated. Angry. Or, my favorite, we just ignore it and hope it goes away. (laughs) Right? That doesn't work out so well. Or perhaps maybe instead of feeling, or you may feel that way, but perhaps you double down on things. Maybe if I repeat my idea again and again and again, it'll go away or maybe you'll believe me. Or, my favorite, if I speak slowly and loudly. And I've got this picture of Chris Tucker in my mouth going, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Right? We, we really want those types of things, especially when it's deep down in here and it's something that we grew up with and, and we really sense that, that, this is, that I, this is what mom and dad taught me, this is what grandma and grandpa taught me, and you begin to question these things because the evidence keeps bubbling up to the surface and you're like, mm, wait a minute. It's uncomfortable. But can I tell you, I think sometimes God has to make us uncomfortable to get our attention. Amen? Okay. Maybe that's just me. That's just me, okay. And sometimes I think he has to do it dramatically. And so today we're going to consider a man named Saul, who is later called Paul, in Acts chapter 9. And we are going to talk about some closely held beliefs that this particular individual had and what God had to do to get his attention. How many of you have read this story in Acts chapter 9 before? Yes, I'm sure that you have. Let's take a look at it one more time. First of all, we met the man in chapter 7 of Acts. And we met him at the stoning of Stephen. Okay? Then they cast him, meaning Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We see him again at the beginning of chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. I wonder if years later, when Paul saw this particular work that Luke had written, if that really...
caused his stomach to knot up. I wonder that. And uh, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Boy, that's what I want to be known for. And Luke picks up his bigger story again, in chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder, murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, which is what they called Christianity at first, men or women, he might bring them bound, bound to Jerusalem. When we talk about persecution here, I think sometimes our scripture is a little sanitized. Murderous threats. This wasn't pleasant. This wasn't pretty. This wasn't 50s television. This was ugly. It was gritty. and It was painful. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to understand about this man named Saul. First, you, 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 you have to get this. He was a Jew from another part of the Roman Empire. He is not from Jerusalem. In fact, he is from a, a city called Tarsus, which is in south-central Turkey. Okay? So you know where Turkey is on the Mediterranean. He's from the south-central area, a place called Tarsus. So he has moved to Jerusalem. Why? Why has he moved to Jerusalem? Because the temple is there. And if you are a Jewish scholar, you go to the temple to study. So imagine... <laughs> Harvard, Yale, Cambridge, Oxford, and Stanford all rolled together for religious studies. That's the temple at Jerusalem. You must understand, Paul is an elite among elites. He's that brilliant. He moves from one part of the empire to go to the temple at Jerusalem in order to study. Here's what he says about himself. Galatians chapter 1, he's writing a letter later on in his life. This is one of the early letters. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, that's the Jewish religion, how I persecuted the church of God violently, violently, and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. He's very Jewish. He's very driven. Here's what he says about himself in Philippians chapter 3. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. <laughs> He's thrown down. Circumcised on the eighth day, like a good Jew, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which is often referred to as the warrior tribe, by the way, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. In some translations, it's a Pharisee among Pharisees. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If there's a law, I'm following it, and I double-dog dare you to try to challenge me on that. He's that type of Pharisee. You've got to understand this when we're talking about Paul. Sorry, Saul, in this case. Saul was smart and formidable and terrifying if you were a Christian. You have to understand the context of this. 
there was likely no match in the church against him and his zeal. Okay? He's that kind of individual. So Jesus has to intervene. (laughs) And oh boy, does he. All right? So let's keep reading. Again, back to Acts chapter 9. Now, as he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Surprise! I don't know how many times I've read this. It's easy to to miss. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led them, led him by the hand, and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. <laughs> hey, by the way, if God speaks to you and nobody else hears it, don't panic. Just a thought. Quick little sidebar. There's a story in the Old Testament that's quite fascinating with a lot of parallels to this. <clears throat> it's in the book of Second Kings, chapter 6, if you're interested in looking at it. But essentially, there's a prophet in Israel. His name is Elisha heard of Elisha, right? Who's a miracle-working prophet. And Elisha was receiving certain pieces of information um, from the Lord to tell the Israelites because they were at war with the king of uh, uh, Aram or Syria. Okay? So if you know your geography, you've got Israel, right? And then just kind of off you have Syria. There's a lot of conflict going on there right now, right? So they're at war with one another. And Elisha is receiving things from the Lord and telling the king of Israel, like the the king of Syria is camped over here, so either go and attack him or stay away from there, or however it's, you know, he's getting intelligence. And the king of Syria realizes this, and somebody figures out that it's Elisha who's giving, giving him this information, and so naturally the king of Syria sends an army to go get Elisha. And maybe you remember this story because in the morning, <laughs> I love this, and it says that Elisha's servant went outside and he saw that surrounding the city was an army. And he goes back in and he says to, this is the David version, okay? So keep this in mind. He goes in and he says to, says to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha goes outside and he looks around, he sees the army and he says, he says there are more with us than against us. And I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if this is the direct translation or not. I haven't looked at it. But I think, I think the servant says, you've been drinking? Because, <laughs> wait, wait a second. And then it says, Elijah prayed that his servant's eyes may be opened. And when he did, the servant saw <laughs> angels sitting on chariots of fire. Man, that's awesome. But here's the interesting part of it. And Elisha struck the entire army blind. What is the capital of Syria? Damascus. 
So you have an army from Damascus coming into Israel, and they are blinded. Of course, the king of Israel says, should I kill him? And Elisha says, no. Bring him into the city and give them something to eat and drink. See the parallel? So they do that and sends them home. And here we have something completely different. We have Israel going to Damascus and blinded and taking nothing to eat or to drink for three days. There's parallels that are going on here. It's supposed to remind us not of the story, but of the power that God has. Jesus is exercising this power in order to get Saul's attention. How many of you would have your attention captured at this point, right? Let's be honest. Church, God fights for us. Please keep that in mind. And then the scene changes. Luke, every time I read Luke, I feel like there's camera angles going on. Scene changes. Here it is. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias... And he said, here I am, Lord. Which, by the way, God calls your name. Great response. Here I am, Lord. Okay? I'm just telling you, you should try it. See what happens. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. This is cool. He gets a direct Direct idea, direct vision from God of what he's supposed to do, how he's supposed to do it. He's got detail. I wish half my life had this much detail in it. In it. And here it is. God's laying it out for him. Now, notice the response, because I love this. But Ananias answered, Um, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So, you want me to go and help the guy who's here to arrest us all? Are you crazy? I mean, that's, that's really what... Now, he's being more polite because it's Jesus, right? I understand that. But you, these are real emotions, He does not have the benefit of reading the story. He doesn't know where this goes. He is living it, just like you do sometimes. Okay? He's here to bind us all and to take us to Jerusalem. Remember the whole murderous threats thing? Yeah, this is real, and now you want me to go talk to him? (laughs) Ha, right. Joking. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. (laughs) Yeah, sign me up for that, right? (laughs) How many of you have seen the the Star Wars uh, episode when Admiral Akbar, the fish-looking guy, is like, It's a trap! That's what I feel like is going on here. It's a trap. Of course it feels like a trap. My goodness, 
So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And the rest of Acts chronicles much of his ministry, and the New Testament is comprised of many of his writings that we still have. God put to good use all of that mental horsepower. All of it put it to use. I want to make just a couple of observations here. Things for you to think about, things for all of us to think about. First of all, this story is one of the, in part, is one of the reasons why I am a Wesleyan Arminian in my beliefs. I believe that we have free choice, and I feel from the story that at any point, Saul could have said no. Now, did God make it easy for him to say yes? Of course he did. But he still had the option of going, nope, I'm not going to believe it. He has free will, he has free choice. And for me, that, that says a lot. Second observation. This story illustrates the dark side of dogma. Very much like my preconceived ideas of women in ministry. And not only does it, does it illustrate the dark side of dogma, it also and especially illustrates the dark side of fundamentalism. Now please understand that fundamentalism takes a lot of different forms. There is religious fundamentalism, uh, and I want you to keep in mind that Saul, in this case, is a fundamentalist in the Jewish sense of the word, um, which predated Islamic fundamentalism probably by some thousand years, because Islam didn't come on the scene until after 1000 AD, okay? So fundamentalism is a long-standing evil sort of thing when it's taken to the extreme. There is also ideological Fundamentalism. You can have fundamentalists um, who believe all sorts of different things. Usually that turns out to be political. You can have political fundamentalists on both sides of the aisle. You can have conservative, you can have liberals. We saw a lot of the, the, the liberal fundamentalism come out in places like Central America back in the 80s, so it's there. But when we cannot persuade or convince another of our position and we choose violence in order to promote our cause, well, that's the mentality of ISIS. That's the mentality of communist guerrillas. That's the mentality of Westboro Baptist Church. Saul ravaged the church Saul breathed murderous threats against the church. Saul committed persecution on a grand scale. <laughs> and and Jesus, Jesus says, why do you persecute me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Did you notice that? He says, why are you persecuting me? And so w w what does Paul say? Well, who are you? <laughs> I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Gulp. See, the thing of it is, is when, when, we, when we take the extreme position of something, Jesus sets himself up against all of that. All of it. 
Jesus is the central point, not the idea about Jesus, but Jesus himself. It's that relational component with Jesus that, that he says, this is the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the, not my teachings, not, not the law, not any of that. Me, I am. That's what he's saying. Jesus is all of that. He sets himself up against all of those things. By the way, Jesus is not an American. By the way, Jesus is not an evangelical or a fundamentalist. By the way, Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's Jesus. That's it. And frankly, that's all you need. As I was driving in this morning, another observation came to me. (laughs) I'm like looking at the clock and I'm thinking, really? We couldn't have done this yesterday? Jesus said, I had to get your attention. Okay, that's fine. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. Sometimes when we read familiar stories, it's very easy to speed over certain things. Okay? Um, We do it all the time. And and we often have to slow down enough so that we can see these things in a little more detail. And I I don't know how I missed this stunning feature of the story. Okay, this is a stunning feature of the story. Here it is. God spoke audibly. Can can we just take all of the other stuff, the whole blindness, the whole vision thing, and let's just get down to the, the one feature of this that makes it stand out. God spoke audibly, and Paul wasn't the only one to hear it. The people around him heard it as well. They didn't, they didn't see where it was coming from. They just knew that there was, there was a sound there. There was a voice. Now, the previous chapter, the one that was about Philip, it seems that the Holy Spirit was prompting him, was guiding him, was, was speaking to him in, in such a way that he understood. Go to this road. He goes to the road. He sees a chariot. Get close to the chariot. So he gets close to the chariot. So there's guiding, there's prompting that's going on there. But here, other people heard the voice of God audibly. Don't miss that. (laughs) That's a a big thing. I think it's common in in, in American Christian belief that God only speaks through his Bible. Okay, I I think that's that's probably true. The, The problem is, I don't find any real evidence of that in the Bible itself. There's nothing in the Bible that says, hey, by the way, now that the Bible's written, God's not going to speak to you anymore. I don't see that. I don't see any evidence to that effect. And I don't think, I don't think we can ignore that. I don't think we can set that aside because time after time after time within the book of Acts, we see God interacting with his people one-on-one directly. And it's not because they don't have the Bible. They do it because they're in tune with God. They're in his presence and they're, they're relating to him one-on-one. Does this make sense? I think this is a big deal. I think this is a big lesson for all of us who claim the name of Jesus. Now, please understand, what God says to you directly is not going to contradict his word because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Right. Okay, so the things that you hear, you know, like, Jesus is never going to tell you to cheat on your spouse. Okay, he's not going to tell you to do that. He's not going to tell you to go kill somebody. Those are the things that God's going to take care of. That's not up to you. 
So God speaks directly. It's not going to necessarily contradict. But he, but he speaks and he guides and he prompts if we learn how to hear his voice. If we learn how to hear his voice. And by the way, there's a learning curve. For some of us, that's a little steeper than others. And that's okay. The point is, is that you're on the journey. You're attempting to do this. You see, the, tr- the truth of the matter is, is that Jesus wants something different than dogma. He wants something different than just, you know, silence and just reading. I mean, he wants something different from us. And he doesn't want just the as- assent to certain ideas or adherence to a particular system of rules. He wants to hang out with you. Like, legitimately hang out with you. Direct connection. Uh, this, this struck me the other day. I heard somebody say this, that you are the average of the five people that you hang out with the most. So here's my question. Is Jesus one of them? How do you know? More importantly, how do the other four people know? Food for thought, I think. And this is why every single time we get together and we're in the book of Acts, I can't not see the idea of the presence of God being central to the task of being a believer. Be in the presence of God. Because that's where your beliefs are going to be challenged. Oh, and they will be. Because Jesus wants you to believe that he is the truth and the life. And he's going to guide you in all of those things. But you've got to be in his presence. Where you can say, God, is this true? Is, is it true that you don't, you don't want women in ministry? God, is, is it true that these things that I've held for so long are maybe may, may, may a little shaky? Is it true that I've, I've created this idol in my life? Is it true that this relationship is bad for me? Is this true? God, you're the truth. Show this to me. Help me understand this. Yeah, all of those things. And if this is not true, then God, what should I do? And you're not limited to violence and oppression but you can look deeply in your own heart and say, God, start with me. And I've said this before, I'm going to continue to say it because I know this to be true. Tulsa doesn't need another church. The world doesn't need another church. What the world needs is more people acting like Jesus who are in conversation with him because they're in his presence. That's when we get changed. And if I do that, and you do that, and we do that together, all of a sudden begins to look like the kingdom of God. And if we're not about the kingdom of God, why are we here? I want it to be about the kingdom. I think you do too. Like every week, um, we're going to be over off to the side, willing to pray with you. Um, Maybe God's poking and prodding you on something. Group this size, I'm guessing somebody's getting poked and prodded a little bit. Hey, don't walk out the door with allowing one of us to just pray with you. To ask 
God to be present with you so he can guide you and lead you. We'd love to do that, um, you know, with you, for you. Keep that in mind. I'm quickly coming to the conclusion of two basic assumptions that one, God wants to be with us. In that the more I'm in his presence, the more that I'm connected to him, the better it is for me that he has my best interest at heart. 